I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. If, if he experienced your entire life, then that tiny sliver of the atonement that is your existence, you know what that feels like. You're experiencing it, right? You know every detail of it, every, the context, the pain, uh, the goods, the ups, the down, everything. You know that. So for that teeny sliver of the atonement that he experienced your life, you can have empathy for him. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Saints Unscripted podcast. Today we have a very special guest, and he is an author, an historian, he's an artist, he's a speaker, and he, he, was a doc, he is a doctor. Can, can, you start, can you still say that you're a doctor? You do, right? Yeah, I'm still a doctor. Not I, don't see, I don't see patients okay. anymore. I, I stopped seeing patients in the ER, but uh, I'm still a doctor. They don't revoke my MD. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I, I wonder why I was thinking like thinking that. Anyway, well, I wasn't thinking that, but um, well, we're so grateful to have Jeff O'Driscoll on the podcast, and he is. Uh, I I hope I mentioned author because I have two of his books here. I have Hiram Smith: A Life of Integrity, and the book that I've recently been reading is Not Yet, and it's Near Life Experiences and Lessons Learned, and. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jeff. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of cool things, so hope you stick around for the entire podcast. But th- maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit. I, I kind of gave you a little bit of some of the things that you've done, but uh, anything important for our audience to know about you? I was born in California when my parents were just married a few years. My father got transferred to the East Coast, and I lived in New Jersey for a few years when I was a kid. I still have memories of both of those places. And then my parents uh, wanted to move home, so they moved back to Morgan, Utah, rural Utah, uh, where they'd both been born and raised, and that's where I pretty much grew up. Um, I went on an LDS mission uh, to London, England. Uh, I'm a graduate of Brigham Young University, my undergraduate degree. I uh, attended medical school at the University of Utah and did my postgraduate training in Salt Lake. And I practiced emergency medicine for 25 years at a level one trauma center in Salt Lake. This podcast has kind of uh, taken its course over six or seven months. And we, we started it talking about, you know, the word faith crisis, right? And or her faith struggles, and it's kind of evolved into like a faith adventure. Anyway, and we've talked about you know many many issues of church history, church doctrine, church policy, church leaders, past and present, and as many struggles as we can talk about. <laughs> anyway, I, oh. I, I like the phrase. Uh, what did you call it? Faith, faith journey, faith, faith journey, faith adventure, faith adventure. I like that. I attribute that to uh, Gainalyn Condi. She was on the podcast and she, she talked about it, kind of trying to rephrase, reframe it as a faith adventure. Yeah, because faith crisis tends to have a negative connotation. Um, and 
people they have there's this misperception in the LDS culture that uh, having a struggle with your faith somehow makes you less somehow makes you unworthy or not as good we it's often thought of as a bad thing even a sin but i think faith adventure is much more an accurate term and and descriptive of what we go through because the lord tells us in scripture i will try their patience and their faith well how do you try a rope or a chain you stretch it until it breaks that's how you test it. That's how you document the strength of that rope or chain. And God tells us right in Scripture, I will try their patience and their faith. So we should expect to be stretched and pulled to the breaking point, and it's not an indicator that we're less faithful or that we're less somehow in the gospel when we have those struggles. And hopefully this helps people who may have these kind of you know, struggles or trying of faith later in their life that they can see it not as something negative. Because I, I probably thought it was a little negative that I was starting to have doubts and struggles. And I remember it was, you know, I, I, I've kind of been in and out of activity for a few years and struggling. And actually, about a year ago is when it kind of all came tumbling down. And I thought it was, you know, crisis level, calling May Day, like, Am I going to leave the church? Am I going to forsake everything that I've built for so many years? And then, funny enough, is for some reason, I latched on to, but I know the Book of Mormon's true. <laughs> so that's really kind of been an anchor, so to speak. Well, part of the challenge is, is that we tend to frame everything with the biases that sometimes we're not even aware of. So, for example, I was sitting in a Sunday school class once, and they started talking about Nephi and uh, killing Laban. And they were talking about how wicked Laman and Lemuel were and how faithful Nephi was. And I said, wait a minute. Nephi had to be told three times to kill Laban. Uh, and you're saying how faithful he is. This was a big, this was a big challenge for him. He, his faith was being stretched. And we look at it with thousands of years of retrospect and perspective, and we deem it as faithful behavior without any appreciation for the consternation that was going on in him that he had to be told three times before he did it. If Laman and Lemuel had to be told three times to do something, we'd call them faithless. We'd call them wicked. But when Nephi is told three times and then finally does it, we call him faithful. And we just have to break our biases and look at things more objectively sometimes, I think. You know, I feel like I've been in such a good position to talk to so many people who have given me such great insight. And I call experts or mentors just absolutely amazing people. And, and it feels like I've, I feel a little better about those things. And for some reason, I'm feeling like I still have this either distress or weight inside of me. I like to say it's kind of on my heart because it feels a little heart-wrenching. And I feel like it's toward God. Like, it's not so much, oh, I have a problem with Joseph Smith's polygamy. I'm going to, you know, leave the church. Or I'm, and not, not to say that people leave the church over that, but that I'm not, I don't have a huge problem with that anymore. I, I feel like it's with God, and I don't know exactly what it is. And I could definitely attribute it to, okay, have I been praying a lot? I find it really hard to pray. I, I find it, 
extremely hard to pray. Lately, it's been a little easier. Try Maybe you should try just having a conversation instead. Maybe I should. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Sometimes we get all wrapped up in this prayer thing, and we forget that what we're doing is having a conversation. And part of the problem with labeling it as prayer and, and thinking that it has to look a certain way is a lot of times in prayer, we don't leave room to listen, to hear, to receive. One of the things that really uh, took my prayer to a new level was way back when I was a missionary. I started carrying a notebook in my pocket. And during the day, when there was something that, something that came up that I wanted to remember or think about in prayer, if I wanted to repent of something uh, or just be grateful for something, I'd make a note in my notebook. At the end of the day, I sat, I kneeled down and I opened the notebook up in front of me. And I realized that I had an agenda, which sounds irreverent initially, but if you think about it, you would never go to an important business meeting without an agenda. You would never go meet with some head of state or do something really important in your life without taking notes. It's not irreverent, it's preparation. And the, the other marvelous thing that I learned with my notebook was after I got to the end of my agenda and I'd spoken with God about the things that were important to me, I waited and I listened. And he started to talk to me and I had something to write it down with. I had a notebook and a pen right there. And when I started writing it down, I got a lot more answers. It's a powerful thing. And for people, uh, I, I did that for 40 years before I finally found some real genuine validation. And it came when Sister Nelson spoke publicly about the notebook and pen that President Nelson keeps on his nightstand. And he wakes up at night and he gets messages. And sometimes she feels inspired to get up and leave him alone and she'll leave the room. And he'll come out an hour later with three pages of notes. And, and for, so for me to hear about him using a notebook was incredibly validating after those decades of using it myself. Wow. Because I'm starting to rem remember that now about President Nelson keeping that notebook. And I've, I've been so bad at writing. We could Maybe do, I need to do that too now. We could do better at, uh, at prayer. Uh, we need to think about prayer as communication with God, not some prescribed uh, activity that we learn and have to do in a certain way. Prayer For me, prayer comes when I'm riding my bicycle when I'm out running, uh, when I'm taking care of a really sick patient. Uh, you know, silently in my mind, I was praying a lot of times about how to care for somebody. Uh, I just have a different concept about prayer than what a lot of people seem to have. I wonder where, where I, maybe not where I went wrong, but I do remember praying at, at times in my life I don't know if I remember waiting and listening. I know at times I've had prayers that have been formulaic and structured. And, you know, over time, I wonder, you know, exactly what went wrong and how I, you know, I feel like I have a disconnect with God. And now at this point in my life, I have a hard time praying. And so I like what you said. Just try having a conversation, maybe less form formal, maybe more heartfelt. I guess it's hard too sometimes to just, I mean, I guess faith is involved. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit as far as just seeming like you're just talking to nothing. 
Yeah. There's, there's a really, really powerful lesson in the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon that most people miss. I've spoken to a lot of congregations about this, and they almost never see it this way until it's pointed out to them. And then they go, oh, of course. Here's, here's the scenario. Uh, okay, I'm ready to say, oh, of course. <laughs> this, this, is, this is Lehi's dream and later Nephi's same dream. Why did the people have to go through the mists of darkness? See, that's the response I get most of the time when I ask that question. I played right into your hand. <laughs> There's this long silence. And people give answers like, well, they wandered off the path or they weren't doing the right things. They let go of the rod. All these things that imply that they did something wrong. And that's why they're in the darkness. But if you read it carefully, the mists of darkness are on the path. If you're on the path, holding on to the rod, pressing forward, doing everything right, you have to go through the darkness to get to the tree. The mists of darkness are on your path. They're not an indicator that you've gone astray. They're an indicator that you're doing the right thing. The darkness in our life, the times we feel separated from God, uh, are in the mists of darkness, and they're an indicator that you're on the path doing the right thing. Have you ever thought of it that way? Not that specifically and vividly. <laughs> Certainly not. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Gosh, I feel like I've received so many answers right now. I, uh, I also wanted to ask you, you, you said somewhere in, in your book that you've been disappointed and when disappointed and discouraged when you've doubted, but when you've trusted and moved forward, you've found success and clarity. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as far as maybe we could kind of tie in that mist of darkness and, and try to, you know, in, in connection with trying to commune with God. How, how can we apply that, that principle to, you know, maybe someone who's struggling to in that mist of darkness that thinks it might be they, because they sinned or because they did something wrong. And I'm kind of explaining what I actually feel, <laughs> have felt. I'm going to start changing now that you talked about the mist of darkness, which is awesome. But anyway, any thoughts on that? Um, just a month before my 12th birthday, my older brother, to whom I was very close, uh, died in a farm accident. He tipped a tractor over. And I thought I got through it unscathed. I didn't really think it impacted me in any significant way. 20 years later, my brother came to me and he said, you have to go talk with our mother because there's things she's never told you about my death. And as you might imagine, that got my attention. So I went and I sat down with my mother on a beautiful sunny day. Uh, my parents are still alive. They still live in the same house uh, up in Morgan. And that was the first time she'd ever told me. She said, I always knew where you were in the house before Stan died because I could hear you singing. When your brother died, you stopped singing. And I realized that was the first time I realized the major psychic impact it had on me. It must have been shortly after that that I started to sometimes get messages, really clear messages. On one occasion, I think the message from my brother saved me from a lethal car crash. Um, the car crash still happened, but it, it, nobody was injured because he came to me and told me to slow down bef 
uh, and because I slowed down, I think that's what saved my life, actually. And I had enough of those experiences as a teenager. And I remember when I was 19, I, I approached this, this woman who was just a few years older than I was, but I thought she had a lot more experience. I really trusted her. And without giving her any context at all for my question, I, I asked her, I said, does God ever speak to you in senses? And she just looked at me with this very knowing look. She didn't ask any questions at all. She just said, don't ever doubt that. That's all she said. Again, it was, it was sound advice. And it was about 30 years later, I stumbled across a comment from, uh, I think it was President Marion G. Romney in General Conference, where he talked about, sometimes I get answers like, I think he said, like Enoch, when God speaks to me in sentences. And I said, oh, wow, <laughs> okay. So I learned that when I got those messages, if I listened to them, if I honored them and tried to follow, uh, things went better. If I was fearful, doubting, ignoring, then sometimes I would struggle with things that I might have been spared if I'd have just listened to the messages I got. Now, everybody doesn't get messages in the same way, but you have to, what you have to do is find out how your messages come. Do they come in a feeling? Do they come in a knowing? Do they come in a tingle down your spine confirming what you're hearing is correct? Uh, do you see things? Uh, you know, over, over the decades, I started to see the messengers sometimes that would bring the message. And so when I got into the emergency department years later as a physician, Sometimes I would literally see souls leave their bodies when they died, and they'd communicate with me before they left. So it, it's something that evolves over years or decades, and everybody comes to their answers in a slightly different way. And it's very important that you not feel you have to conform your process to somebody else's. Find out what works for you and do that. And I'll tell you another secret. Yeah, it, if I really need an answer to something, if I really uh, want to communicate with heaven about something that's really important to me, I ask my wife to pray for it. <laughs> she, she seems better connected than me. Uh, and uh, I think I remember you saying in, in, in your book, you said when you've you know, labored for, for a long period of time on something and finally come to a realization or develop something and you tell your wife, she's like, oh, that's how I've felt about it for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I've got some new profound truth and she just shrugs her, sins, her shoulders and says, yeah, that's all, how I've always felt about it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to, you know, communicate with my wife in that sense more. Maybe she could teach me a lot. Holy moly. Okay. Well, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, I had a question about spirituality and religion and in your, in your book, uh, Not Yet, you distinguish, you say spirituality um, is not the same as religion. And I think, some people how, would, oh. I think some people might disagree with that, but that's how I feel about it. Um, I don't consider myself a religious person, even though, you know, I've gone to church most weeks for my whole life. Um, I was an ordinance worker in the Salt Lake Temple for 15 years. I was a veil worker in the Provo Temple before that. Um, I've, I've been on committees. I literally, for years, wrote church curriculum. So 
despite all of that, I don't think of myself as a particularly religious person. I, I view my connection with the divine as a very personal, intimate thing, and I, that's what I nourish. That's what I try to take care of, is my relationship with, with God, with, with our divine progenitors, and, and not just uh, a male God with a female presence as well. You know, we don't talk about that in our church, despite the fact that we are unique almost among all Christian denominations that we believe doctrinally that there's a female presence in heaven, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father that we talk about all the time. Well, I feel like I can have a relationship with both of them, and uh, I'm okay with that, even though some people, it would make some people uncomfortable to talk about it. I try to follow the admonition of Paul. He said, quench not the Spirit, prove all things, Hold fast to that which is good. So I try to avail myself of the companionship of the Holy Ghost. I try to test things out, try them, see if they work for me. And if they work for me and they're good, then I hold fast to them. Um, that's what Paul said. Quench not the Spirit, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. And the problem that a lot of people struggle with is they want to abdicate that responsibility to somebody else. They'll say, oh, if I just listen to my bishop and do what my bishop says, everything will be fine. If I just listen to the stake president and do what they say, then I'll be good. Even up to and including the prophet, the president of the church. If I just follow everything the prophet says, my life is great. But no, you cannot abdicate your personal responsibility for your spiritual relationship with God to anybody else. That's between you and God, and you have to honor that. And it's not the responsibility of the prophet to tell you how to have a relationship with the divine. Wow. I feel like you answered the, my question I was going to follow up with, if we feel disconnected with our religion, or how can we be spiritual or, or connect with, as you say, the divine God heaven if, if we feel disconnected from that religion? Well, I have two things to say to that. Number one, you're supposed to feel disconnected sometimes. That's what the mists of darkness are. Um, we leave our children alone with babysitters when they're little, and sometimes they even resent it, but it's important. We let them go to half-day kindergarten, even though they may not like it, so that they can be prepared to go to all days uh, first grade. And eventually, they're pretty independent in high school so that they can go away to college for a few months, maybe even a few years. And, and, and the whole point is we leave them alone for increasing periods of time to learn to be independent, so that they can learn to be independent. Brigham Young said that we will need to learn to be as independent as the gods someday. So I'm not surprised or discouraged if my... Uh, uh, heavenly uh, Father leaves me alone for a time because there's purpose in it. And sometimes I feel alone and disconnected, and that's okay because there's a reason for it. It's to help us to learn to be more independent, to rely on our own wellspring of righteousness. So if we're talking about still the mist of darkness a little bit, and we have to trust, we will sometimes go in there, we'll sometimes feel disconnected with God, as you said, and that's probably a good thing. Do, do we need something 
to hold on to while we're disconnected? Because I feel like, and may, maybe I've failed to do this, right? Is no, you right haven't. Now you haven't failed. Okay. And in fact, ironically, you verbalized a little while ago. You did exactly what's re represented in in the dream. You held on to the rod. You knew the Book of Mormon was true, right? Mm. You held on to the Word of God. So the Word of God comes in many forms. It comes in written form. It comes directly to us, right? When you get a message directly from God, when you get the Word of God directly, let that direct you. Let that guide you. But no, you, you had something you were still connected to, and you verbalized it. Dang it, you got me again. Actually, that's, that's really awesome, though. I love... So the other thing I was going to say about being disconnected from God is this is how I imagine it. Imagine you're walking along with God side by side. And you turn to your right and you say, hey, there's something shiny over there. I want to go check it out. And God says, well, you might not like it over there. I'm going this way. And we say, yeah, 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 but I want to go check out that shiny thing. And God says, you have your agency. You can go wherever you want to go. I'm going this way, and you're always welcome to come back and walk with me. I won't love you any less if you go check that out. It's your choice. And so we wander off. We go check out the shiny thing, and we distance ourselves from God. It's not a matter of worthiness. It's a matter of choice. We didn't become unworthy. We didn't become less loved because we went and checked out the shiny thing. We in we imposed the distance simply as a matter of our choice to go a different direction. And if we don't like the way the shiny thing turns out, we can turn around and we can walk back and catch up to God. And when we get there, he's going to say, welcome back. I hope you found what you were looking for. I hope you had the experience that was meaningful to you. I love you the same now as I always have. And then you can walk with him again. And you close the distance, not as a matter of worthiness, it's as a matter of choice. You simply choose to walk with him, and then the distance narrows. See, we attach all this baggage about worthiness. We, we condemn ourselves and think that we're separated from God because we're not worthy, or that if, if we feel distance, it somehow implies that we're less. I don't believe it. If we're distanced from God, it's because we made a choice to go a different direction, and we can make a choice to go back the other direction. It doesn't change our worth. Nothing changes our infinite, eternal, divine worth. Worthiness is not a good word, in my opinion, because it implies that your worth is changing. When somebody's asking you questions about worthiness, and I put that in quotation marks, it implies that they're determining your worth or that they're somehow helping you determine your worth. But your worth doesn't change. Your worth is infinite and eternal and unchanging. And when we understand that, then we can make decisions from a point of knowing, oh, I'm a child of God. I, have a, I am of infinite, unchanging worth. And if I make a decision that leads to an unpleasant outcome, I'm going to make a different decision next time. But it doesn't make me worth less. That seemed to be the first thing that, well, not the first thing, but a very base thing in kind of the life of Jake Watson was somehow I had compromised that worth or somehow 
I don't know if I want to go that deep. Yeah, well, I, I was talking because I was. I mean, I, I've had a. You can say what you I want and edit this. it out. Well, I was. I I've had like major major problems. Here's this. I can just put that there if you want to fill it. Well, I I was just. Um, but but I've remember, had, as you're speaking, before you think about cutting it out, the power of your podcast is in its vulnerability. Ah, yeah. You're to right. the extent that you're vulnerable and, and reveal right. things, that's where your power is. So even this part we're saying right now is a good thing to keep in the podcast because there's a lot of people out there that they think they have to hide something that they feel re, uh, uncomfortable about. And most of the time, the discomfort they're feeling has been imposed upon them by somebody else's judgment. We don't become worth less. That, that's not how it works. You know, and we, we, we pound it into people all the time. Um, I know people that have stopped going to church because they couldn't, they turned 19 years old and they couldn't go to church without people hounding them about when are you going on your mission? And why aren't you on your mission? And it made them feel so much judged that they just stopped going to church. I know people who tried and were unable to have children, and they finally stopped going to church because they couldn't go to church without people asking them, why aren't you having children yet? See, we do all these inadvertent things. We don't even mean to do them sometimes, but we, we challenge somebody's worth based on their actions. Actions have consequences, but they don't change our worth. See, the consequence of walking away from God to check out the th shiny thing was you're further from God. And you may or may not be doing something with the shiny thing that may not help you in the long run, right? But your worth doesn't change. The consequence is your distance from God because you made a choice to walk away from God. But let go of all the shame and the guilt and, and, and the sense of worthiness about it and just turn around and walk back to God. He's still waiting. He's still happy. He's still receiving you. God's love. And I know that not everybody agrees with this, and I know why some people don't agree with this, but in my opinion, God's love is unconditional. I think the defining characteristic of God's love is that it's unconditional. Now, people conflate the issues. They say, but if we do this, God blesses us. And I say, yes, of course he does. But it doesn't, he doesn't love you more. And if you do something and you deprive yourself of a blessing, yes. Uh, your actions have consequences, but they don't change God's love. Even when you're being deprived of a blessing, even when you're going through something really tough in your life, God doesn't love you less. The consequences are simply an act of your uh, a consequence. They're they're uh, an outgrowth of your choice, not a lack of love from God. And I think that's really important because I understood it somewhat when I had children. I understood it a lot more when I had grandchildren. And I understood there's nothing they can do to change my love for them. Now, they could grow up and do bad things. They could, uh, you know, uh, rob a bank and go to jail and be in prison. Those are consequences of their actions. It doesn't change my love for them. I, uh, so what <clears throat> happened to you? What was your wound? My wound? Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Well, I'll just have to decide if I want to cut this out. 
I mean, it's super intense. I, uh, what made you feel less? Oh man. I think I bought into the belief somehow that I was a scourge upon everyone I knew. I felt like my mistakes affected them so deeply and they altered their lives so drastically. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm just telling the typical depression, anxiety, uh, storyline, right? Story plot (laughs) and years. And I mean, as far as I can remember early teenage years, uh, I've bought into this and not sure if I'm going to keep this in, but if maybe it's important for you to know, but I, I've been pretty heavily involved in self-harm. I usually wear long sleeves cause you know, my left arm's pretty scuffed up. And why and are, why are you reluctant to say that? I don't know. I feel like I'm a fraud. I don't know. I feel like the problem that I've always had with telling people is I feel like I'm trying to get attention. Well, I have a friend on Facebook. She's just this beautiful soul. And uh, I love the posts she puts. And 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 uh, one of her pictures she posted, she was in short shorts or something. And I saw all the scars on her thighs. And we had a long conversation about it, you know. And now she's helping untold numbers of people that are suffering from that same depression, that same desire to harm themselves and giving them hope. Um, see, that's what people are doing most of the time in their life when they're doing destructive behaviors is they have pain and they're trying to manage their pain and they don't know how to manage the pain because they've lost hope. And when they can talk with somebody that's been through it, that has some experience and it can give them hope again. You probably read in my uh, book about uh, a guy, I think he was in his late twenties, maybe early thirties. He came into the emergency department and he was really struggling with, uh, depression. The anniversary of his, uh, brother's death, uh, had just come up and it was incapacitating him. It was, it was the first and only time I remember in the emergency department being moved upon, uh, to say this. And I just looked at him and I said, I remember how I felt when my brother died. And his whole countenance changed. His shoulders straightened up. It was like some unseen burden was being taken from him. And he realized, oh, I'm not alone. Somebody else has been here. I can do this. And that's the, that's the, that's the capacity you have because of your experience. <sighs> so scared. I, I feel like. I feel like I have no reason to have these things. I, I've, I look at my life, I have a pretty easy life. Typical, you know, just go to school, never broken a bone, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was going through a really, really dark time in my life once. Um, and Spirit spoke to me and said, part of your trial is that no one knows. Because I had just exactly what you just described. I had from, ev- from everybody's viewpoint, I had the perfect life. I had a great wife, great kids, health, good job, income, nice house. Everything that people see 
were all was fine and wonderful. And yet I had this horrible, heavy, empty, hollow darkness that I was going through, and it was life-threatening. And Spirit told me, part of your trial is that no one knows. When, when your spouse dies, people rally to your defense. When, when you're sick, people bring you food, right? People see those things, and they come and they help you in various ways. When nobody comes to help you, you feel all the more alone. So, so have you built into your schedule some kind of regular self-care where you can let go of all the stresses, all the frustrations, all the things that you felt relieved of when you were there? You can let them all go. You can put them on a, in a box, put them on a shelf, and go for a drive and spend a half a day just enjoying life. Do you have any of that built into your schedule? No, I can't get myself to do it. This is what you need to do. Get yourself a little box and in a figurative way, take all of that baggage, all of that stuff that you're carrying, put it in the box, put it on the shelf and say, I'll be back to visit you tomorrow. I'm taking a vacation right now from all of it. You're not pretending it doesn't exist. You're not pretending it won't come back. You're, you're not doing anything so unrealistic as to say that I'm never going to have it again. But what you're saying is, I'm going to take a vacation from you for a few hours. I'm going to go down to the Dairy Queen. I'm going to get an ice cream and I'm going to go sit in the canyon for a couple of hours and I'm going to take care of myself. And I'll deal with you again when I get back. And so then when you're by yourself, when you're out there on the mountain and you're having these experiences and it starts to creep back in, you can say, no, 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 this is my time. I, I, I've put you aside for now. I'll deal with you later. This is my time. You can't come here. Mm, I like that. You can do that. <laughs> okay. Oh. Do you, have you ever been in a mist of darkness where... Think of it. What do you hold on to? What do you look forward to? How do you, how do you keep trudging forward? Do you, do, you, do you receive enlightenment somehow? Do you receive messengers or visitations? Or do you receive... Like, what helps you go through when it seems like the mist of darkness? It probably will. It feels like it'll last forever. There was one thing. Now we're taking turns being vulnerable here. Oh, no. Uh, you don't have to. If you don't want to. I know I was. There, there was one thing that got me through my darkest time. I knew my mother loved me. And I saw the way my mother suffered when my older brother died in the farm accident. And I couldn't do that to her again. I knew my mother loved me. I didn't know anything else in the world except that. I actually sent a text message to a friend of mine that I trusted, that I knew wouldn't uh, have me committed for asking her this question via text. <laughs> and uh, I texted her and said, do you think God still loves me? Because I even wondered about that. But I knew my mother loved me. And that's what got me through. I couldn't hurt her again that way. Oh, I love that. I was not expecting that answer at all. Sorry, I just got to sit on that for a minute. See, that's not in my book. A messenger came to me one day, said, every experience is to enable you to help someone else. 
I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, because sometimes I argue with my messengers. And uh, I said, I thought, ex I thought uh, experiences were for personal growth. And the messenger said, the primary purpose of every experience is to enable you to help someone else. You get the secondary benefit of personal growth. Totally changed my perspective about why we go through the rough times. Yes, it helps us. Yes, we grow from it. Ultimately, we may never be grateful for the really crappy stuff that comes into our lives. There's some things that happen that we may never be grateful for, but we can be grateful for what we learn from those experiences because what we learn can enable us to help others. And what we learn is empathy. And empathy makes us all alike. Now, empathy makes us one. I'm remembering a quote from your book that says, suffering can make us bitter or it can give us empathy or make us empathetic. Yeah. Mm. I hope I'm not bitter. But I that's the problem. Is there, is there... I think the atonement of Jesus Christ is about empathy. Does it cover sin? Yes, it covers sin. Of course it does, because he experienced our entire existence, right? But saying that the atonement of Christ is about sin is like saying my paycheck's about buying toothpaste. Of course I can buy toothpaste with my paycheck, but it's such a small sliver of what it is. The atonement, I think, does it cover sin? Yes, but it's not about sin. The atonement's about empathy. And he tells us that. He says, I took it all upon me so that I would know how to succor my people. I would know how to help them. I, because I took it all upon me, I know the path. I've been on the path. I can show you the best path. All you have to do is ask me and I'll show you the best way to go. You can still go however you want, but I know a better path you can take if you want because I've been there. He has perfect empathy for us. What's really startling and what I've never heard anyone else teach is if, if he experienced your entire life, then that tiny sliver of the atonement that is your existence, you know what that feels like. You're experiencing it, right? You know every detail of it, every, the context, the pain, uh, the goods, the ups, the down, everything. You know that. So for that teeny sliver of the atonement that he experienced your life, you can have empathy for him. And that's what makes us one. Because when we have empathy for one another, there's no judgment. There's only love. And that's what makes us one. That is the at-one-ment. Which is what he prayed for before he went into the garden. Father, let them all be one with us as we're one with each other. Let them be one with us. To be honest, I've never understood at one meant. I, I've heard that people separate the words, but wow. When we have empathy for each other, we become one. Because so there's, there's no judgment. Because you see it from my perspective, I see it from yours, and I say, oh, of course that's what you did. What else would you have done in that circumstance? With everything else that was going on in your life, you did the best thing you thought you could do in that moment. How could I possibly judge you for that? See, there's this plan, and we talk about it as being the great plan of happiness, the plan of salvation. Um, 
Interestingly, there's a chapter in the Book of Mormon where it's called the Plan of Mercy. We don't talk much about that. Interestingly enough, in that chapter that talks so much about justice and mercy, we talk a lot about the justice for some reason. Mercy cannot rob justice, and we make that point clear over and over again. What we don't mention is the fact that the prophet never called it the plan of justice, not once. And yet twice in that chapter, he called it the great plan of mercy. We need to trust more in the mercy of God. So let me, let me, is it okay if I ramble on about this? Please go on. Okay. Because, uh, and maybe I can ask you after you talk some more, because I was going to ask you, do you think the sole purpose for us suffering and having hard times is to have empathy? And maybe we can, I can ask that after. If I don't, that fits. I don't know if it's the sole purpose, but I think it's the biggest purpose. There's other purposes. We learn about ourselves. We learn our strengths. We, we, we learn how to make better choices. We learn what pain feels like. Uh, but I think the biggest, most consequent, consequential thing that we pick up from suffering is empathy. I had this conversation once with a very dear friend of mine, and he had a way of offering these very to-the-point pithy statements that just summed everything up. And we had this conversation about empathy one day. And he looked at me across the desk and he said, empathy is a good thing. <laughs> that was it. That was the end. I mean, we'd, we'd had a lot of back and forth, but that was how the conversation summed up. <laughs> empathy is a good thing. And so, you, you said you wanted to talk about something? Well, before I ask you that question. Let, let's talk for a minute about weakness, because that's something that people get really hung up on. I was praying one morning, and I'd been struggling with something for decades that I thought I needed to overcome. I thought I needed to, it, it, I felt it was a weakness of mine, and I needed to make it a strength, right? And I've been working on it for ages, and it was so discouraging. And in the midst of my prayer, a voice spoke to me and said, you're not here to overcome weakness. You're here to love yourself as you are. I said, no way, this, this can't be right. I'm, I'm listening to the wrong voice here. Um, I, I just, it sounded like anathema to me. And then the voice that was speaking to me took me to a verse of scripture in the Book of Mormon, one that I'd memorized 40 years before. And I, I, I'm not exaggerating, I, exaggerating. I think I'd probably read the verse a thousand times. It's in Ether chapter 12, verse 27. If men will come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Behold, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble before me. And as I'm reading that, it just leapt off the page. I saw something I'd never seen before. It said, I give unto men weakness. And as I read it, he told me, don't disparage weakness. I gave it to you as a divine gift. It's from me. And I'd never perceived it that way before, but it's right on the page. I give unto men weakness. And then he explains, not only is it to help us to be humble, but there's something in the verse about we should exercise faith. And not just faith in anything, but we need to exercise faith in the grace of God. Um, so 
humility, faith, and grace. Those are the three things that that's our part of the equation. So our part of the equation is humility, faith, and grace, or receiving grace. And at the end of the verse, he says, then will I make weak things become strong unto them, right? And again, it just leapt off the page. He said, I will make weak things become strong. It's not your job. You're not here to overcome weakness. I'll do that. And what I thought was anathema in my prayer all of a sudden was doctrinal, scriptural. So I turned back to where I was reading that day on my regular study, scripture study, and it happened to be, I think it was in Jacob chapter 4. And in the process of reading Jacob chapter 4, I'm right where the prophet in that point is talking about weakness. And he starts talking about grace. And I thought, wow, it's in more than one place. And then I turned to the New Testament, all the time being led by the Spirit, where to go. And uh, I'm, I'm looking in the New Testament, and Paul's talking about his weakness that he is so troubled by, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. And he starts talking about in his weakness, he's made strong because of the grace of God. He's talking about exactly the same thing. It was in three different places in the scriptures, then I'd missed it. Weakness is a divine gift. It's not our job to overcome it. Our job is to be humble, to exercise faith, and to receive grace. God will make weak things become strong. So I said, fine. What about the second part of what I was told? You're here to love yourself as you are. That sounded like a rationalization, right? That can't be right. And so I was led to some scriptures again. And the scriptures had to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. There's this commandment to love yourself, right? Spirit said, the only way you can love yourself today is to love yourself as you are. That's the only you that exists. You can love next week's version of yourself next week. But the only way to honor the commandment to love yourself today is to love yourself as you are. It's not a rationalization. It's a commandment. We're not here to overcome weakness. We're here to love ourselves as we are. Totally changed my view about weakness. Man, I have a hard time loving myself as I am. Yes, but you're invited to do so. <laughs> and it's not a rationalization. The only you that exists today is the way you are. And if you're going to obey the commandment, you have to love yourself as you are. And it's not... <laughs> It's not a rationalization. It's an invitation from God. And the reason it's so important is because if you learn to love yourself as you are, then you let go of a lot of the guilt and the self-worth issues because you realize, oh, wait a minute, it's okay to love me like, like I am. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? You can get something that sounds so out there initially, and then when you go and study it and you go, oh, I, I, I felt so led that day um, by the Spirit that took me to each of those verses of Scripture and showed it to me. And then when he spoke to me and said, don't disparage weakness, I gave it to you as a divine gift. I, it felt like Peter, when he got his revelation about taking the gospel to all the world, and he said, you know, he was worried about what was clean and not clean, and, and, and the Lord said, 
don't call something unclean that I've made clean. And he was telling me the same thing about weakness. Don't disparage weakness. Because we tend to think of weakness as being something bad. Something to be overcome. Only took me 40 years <laughs> to, to find that in, in Ether 1227. Wow. All those years I'd been using it as a as inspiration to overcome weakness. And increasingly felt discouraged that I wasn't somehow doing it. I feel like some of these are like some major core issues that I didn't think were there until I started to experience this and try to confront it. The faith adventure kind of thing, right? Yeah. When you, when you finally get to the point where you realize God loves you just the way you are, then you'll be able to start loving yourself more. Because you've convinced yourself you have to be something different or more than what you are right now. Be therefore perfect? Yes, but he did not say, become ye therefore perfect. He did not tell us to become perfect. He said, be perfect. I think what he was saying, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this. I'm, I'm not just saying this for effect. And we can have a larger discussion about it if you want. He didn't say become perfect. I think what he was saying was, you're already perfect. Just be. Just be perfect. Just be who you are. Now, people say, but what about all these things I need to do? And I need to get better at this. I need to be more compassionate. I need to do all these things. And we convince ourselves we need to do all these things to become something. And the reason we convince ourselves of that is because we don't realize who we already are. You are an infinite being of eternal, unchanging worth. You don't become a better person by doing things. You may become more aligned. You may become more content. You might become more disciplined. There's a lot of things you become, but you don't become a better person because you're already an infinite soul of unchanging worth. So that gives some insight into the, the, John the Revelator, who talked about those who overcome are dressed in white robes, and they shall not have their name blotted out of the book of life. What has to happen before your name can be blotted out of the book of life? Spiritual death? Death? I, I don't know. Before your name can be blotted out of the book of life, it has to be in the book of life. Oh. Right? Brigham Young picked up on that and pointed out, every soul on earth already has their name written in the Lamb's book of life. You came here with your salvation already secured. Unless you do something to have your name blotted out of the book of life, it's already there. So it changes the whole motive for why we do things. We don't do things to earn a reward. The reward's already there. It's already been given. We do things out of gratitude for what's already been given us, and we do it to help other people realize who they are as well. You don't have to earn the gift. The gift was given freely. Now, this gets into a whole discussion, of course, about faith and works and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And 
Mormons pride themselves on having a more complete concept of faith and works and what that means. Um, and there's a great verse in the Book of Mormon that says that you're saved by grace after all that you can do. It does not say you're saved by grace because of all that you can do or because of all that you did. Important distinction, in my opinion. This kind of experience, I've been a lot more interested in like the, the story of the prodigal son and how all of this, this, the prodigal son leaves, does all the stuff, comes back, and how the father just embraces him. And he's just back into the fold, back into the family. And yeah. that kind of changed my perspective a little bit. I mean, I, maybe that's one of the fruits of this kind of struggle is that I've come to understand that a little bit more. I, I have a blog post about that very thing, about the prodigal son coming back and how he wasn't required to do anything except come back. All he did was turn around and walk back into the presence of his father. Exactly what I described earlier when I talked about that analogy of walking with God and we choose to walk away from him for a while, and then we turn around and walk back. And that's all the prodigal son did. Um, I have about, I don't know, 70 or 80 blog posts on my website. If, if, if your listeners want to go to uh, jeffodriscoll.com, or they'll get there to Helping Souls Heal. Dot com. And there's about 80 blog posts on there that have these kind of little tidbits that I've tried to put together in digestible ways so that people can think differently about things. JeffOdriscoll.com or HelpingSoulsHeal.com. Cool. We'll have that in the description as well. Yeah. Helping Souls Heal. Most people can spell that. My, my last name, sometimes they trip up on. <laughs> so HelpingSoulsHeal.com. Two L's and a... Is there an apostrophe in the URL? The, not in the URL because okay. you can't put special characters in a URL. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so it's just O'Driscoll without the apostrophe. Cool. Sweet. Oh. Well, let me leave you with one last thing. Okay, sweet. I was getting ready to speak to a large group. I take this responsibility very seriously. I, I was praying and meditating and asking for a message. What, what is it I'm supposed to share? And the voice spoke to me very clearly, said, tell them they're enough, tell them they're divine, tell them they're loved. And I, I delivered that message, and it was well-received, and it set with me for a long time, and I share it often, actually. I was getting ready uh, to go meet with a client about some things, and I talked with this guy who I'd met who's a public speaker a very accomplished public speaker, and he started telling me about how, what you had to do to be successful. And he started talking about how you have to adjust your message to the audience. And I remember pondering that and thinking, how do I adjust my message to the audience? And that voice that had spoken to me uh, a few days before came back and said, I gave you the message. I'll bring you the audience. <laughs> so it was a good ego check. <laughs> you know, I don't need to adjust the message. Uh, so I love that. You are enough. You are divine. You are loved. People need that so much. I could have used that message at the very beginning a few years ago when things started going rough and then earlier this year or last year. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Oh. Nothing you have done has taken you off the path. How do you get to that point of 
believing that though? Why, why do I believe that? Am I being lied to or is it like, what's what, why is that such a hard thing to step away from? Because it requires individual accountability and relationship with God. And sometimes we're sent in, in, in directions that we don't anticipate. You know, Nephi was told the, the commandments are so important, you have to go back and get the gold plates. Your posterity needs the gold plates because they have the Ten Commandments on them and the other teachings that are so important. Go get them. So he marches off to Jerusalem to get the gold plates. And on the way back, God says, oh, by the way, you know that commandment, thou shalt not kill? Can we set that aside for a minute and can you lop off Laban's head while you're at it? Where was, where was Nephi's, uh, uh, where, where was his backup? He had nothing but his relationship with God and the teachings he'd learned from his parents, I suppose, and, and the fact that he was trying to do the right thing, and yet there's, there's major contradiction, right? Uh, and we should, we should prepare for those kind of things. Think about Abraham. Abraham's a boy. He's on an altar of human sacrifice. An angel by the name of Jehovah comes and, and delivers him off the altar and teaches him what an abomination human sacrifice is, right? Fast forward a few decades. Same angel comes back. Hey, Abraham, take your son up on the hill and kill him. Imagine the conflict. See, we tend to think that this was simply this horrible test of obedience. And if you knew what God wanted you do, to do and you did it, it would be just a, an awful, horrible test of obedience. But the question I think that was the bigger test of Abraham is, which Jehovah do I listen to? The one that taught me that human sacrifice was an abomination or the one that's telling me to you do human sacrifice? And, and you can't always just rely on chronology to answer the question for you. The first directive to Adam and Eve was to multiply and replenish the earth. Then they were told not to partake of the fruit. And see, when God's the source of the conflict, you can't go to God for the answer. It's his way of taking himself out of the equation, if you will, and saying, I want you to sort this out on your own. I want you to delve into your own wellspring of righteousness and come up with the answer. And you can see it over and over again. Joseph Smith was absolutely certain in his puritanical beliefs that uh, polygamy was wrong. And then God told him to do it. And Wilfred Woodruff was absolutely as certain that polygamy should continue until God told him to stop it. See, there's all these examples in Scripture over and over of people having these great tests where they get conflicting directives from above. And it forces them on a faith adventure. We come back to where we started. Nice. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.